So, um, <laughs> I don't have any kind of B-roll uh, conversation to go into this topic. Uh, I'm just glad to be here and glad to be speaking again. Um, you know, doing this whole thing about podcasting and jumping into this is a commitment. And at times, you know, we, it's so easy to jump out of these commitments. But these healthy routines of doing things that we enjoy, doing things that are creative, doing things that show our capabilities, help us, you know, help us grow. Um, and we should always be checking for each other and checking um, to that and never just sort of gloss over. And I feel like, even though I'm not, even though I didn't mean it, this is, that's a perfect segue into what I want to talk about today. Uh, this is the LC, LCSW, the podcast with me, Omar Green, LCSW, a podcast about all things mental health. Uh, we're a fledgling podcast. We have like one listener. <laughs> we have no, I'm talking into the void right now, but we are on all platforms, so that's kind of cool. But I wanted to talk about something that I noticed uh, throughout my practice. It is sort of the inaccurate diagnosis of substance use. And how, I, in this first segment, you know, I wanted to talk about how, ironically, it goes both ways. So in my time, you know, as a mental professional, I have seen um, uh, a lot of people seem to almost really quickly and almost without um, hesitation uh, diagnose people with a substance disorder. You know, a person comes in and they say, like, one of these symptoms, are you smoking cannabis, are you using alcohol, are you doing this, and instantly they have a use disorder. And, you know, I've always felt troubled by that, you know, because the, on some level, substance use disorder is, is about excess. You know, like, I'll get deeper into it, but people use substances. You know, as I was talking to someone uh, earlier about that, like, you know, there's people out there that have glasses of wine with their steak for dinner every single night. They don't have alcohol use disorder. They just have really nice taste. Um, so, you know, I, I came from this I came into this discussion, being like, man, people are getting really overdiagnosed. And I have concern with that because that effect, inaccurate diagnosis in general, uh, leads to inaccurate treatment. Just a very simple, almost common sense type of thought. If you don't, if you don't know what the problem is accurately, then you don't know what the solution is accurately. And there it goes, and there's like a lot of time and efficiency wasted because you have two parties, the patient and the provider, both uh, trying to help each other have collaborative care. And they can't because they're, they're going in the wrong directions um, and they're, they're missing each other. And especially from our side, the provider side, because, you know, to always uh, push this uh, no, notion forward as mental health providers, 
Um, I would want to say almost medical providers, but I can't speak for them too much because even though technically I am one, it's LCSW, humble brag, uh, I am not a doctor. And so I don't know their code of ethics. But from, at least from the social work side of the table, the onus is on us. It's always on us to make sure something happens. It's not on the patient. The patient can help. The patient has some responsibility. It's not on us, not on them. Uh, to be the, the, the person that carries home whatever task or objective um, that goes wrong or, or that should go on in, um, in treatment. And that's included in accurate diagnosis. Um, you know, the one thing I kind of say to people, and actually it's rarely I said this to um, uh, a colleague of mine who was a prescriber once, um, you know, I said, like, you know, we're, we're the ones that educate about this. They're not. Like, some people do a good job of self-education. They go on WebMD. They buy themselves a DSM, you know, and they, they read it up. And kudos to them. But your average Joe is just like, yo, I need help. Please help me. When I go to the doctor, I didn't, I don't read up a medical book. I'll go, hey, this hurts. Please make it stop. Um, and so there's a lot of psychoeducation on it. And a lot of questions to be asked. And so when I saw these diagnoses, it concerned me because it can make people view patients uh, in a different way. You view a substance use patient as someone, and I've seen it, that not to be trusted, uh, someone that needs extra supervision, someone that needs extra, um, uh, you know, time in some form of um, psychoanalytical talk therapy, whether it be individual or known. I've seen a lot of people get uh, pushed in IOP programs. Uh, I've seen people who don't have any substance use symptomology at all be pushed with substance use programs. Um, and, you know, these programs of the state, they have no oversight board. They have no person that easily to complain to and and to refute that claim, and they're trapped in that. And, and that's the horrible thing, is that these people are seeking treatment and seeking help, and they find themselves in vulnerable situations to a organization or a provider, or, or a series of providers, and they're, they're essentially, I don't wanna say trapped, but they are put in a very, undesirable and uncomfortable position because to some of them they're mandated they're mandated to do these things after they're hit with the diagnosis of substance use disorder and for some you know they could find care anywhere else i advocate for people to have the rights to find you know to make sure that it's collab their care is collaborative and if they're not okay with it and they are you know they feel like their care is being compromised to a point, you know, to find care somewhere else. I, you know, I've always said that. Self-determination is, is honestly the bedrock of ethics uh, when it comes to um, good care. And so, you know, to see all these people put in these tough positions because they're inaccurately diagnosed, and I've, you know, and I've been there. I've seen people diagnosed, and like to the point where like, I gotta check. I go through a diagnosis 
And, and I think this is where I talk about me being a little surprised because, like, you know, I, everyone has their bias. And so, they, you know, so when I been, did it, I would see people throw a diagnosis, substitute diagnosis on some patient, and I would immediately recheck and be like, okay, do you have X, Y, Z? Do you have this symptom, that symptom? Like, there are like 10, uh, 8 to 10 different symptoms of um, substance use. And, and I think sometimes what, unfortunately, some professionals do is that we go through this sort of haphazardly and we hear someone say one thing and then we go off to the races and we say, okay, you must have substance use. So I'm looking at a diagnosis now. There are 10, right? You know, it's anyone asking, um, do you have recurrent use resulting in failure to fulfill major roles or obligations at work, school, or home? I don't know. And I'm honestly, I, I don't think about it because I, I ask these things. And, and then, you know, a lot of the patients say no. You know, I ask, can, if you, if you have to cut it off right now, can you cut it off right now? Which is another symptomology, right? That's an unsuccessful effort of cut use. And a lot of people say no. So I, I think, you know, when we are presented with that and we ask those questions, it's so important to go through the symptoms and ask them in a way that the, uh, the patient can understand so they can accurately um, get that. And that goes both ways. Because I did read uh, a research for this, because I, I do research for the podcast, because I don't want to seem like I'm just talking out of you know, out thin air. Um, it goes the other way. There's under-diagnosing. There's people that may feel like substance use is an issue or, or for whatever, whatever motivation, and they don't ask questions. You know, and you know, someone's not gonna tell you something unless you ask a question. I mean, they might, but a lot more times than not, they will just let things be as they are. Um, and so literally running through the diagnosis, and I can at least run off at least seven, six or seven off the top of my head, and the other uh, you know, three or four, I can easily look in DSM to ask to, make, to verify that they meet that threshold for use disorder. Because I said before, it's a really serious thing to have that. And in our second segment, we'll get into, you know, um, the policy 42, I think it's 42 CFE part two, which is all about the stigma. You know, you get stigmatized, kind of said like this is a huge stigma. You get stigmatized from your provider and they treat you differently. You can get stigmatized from uh, other people who look at your records, if you have any involvement with the state, whether you have a DCF case, uh, whether you have a case in family, you know, family court, whether you have a case with your PO, you know, those uh, findings can be crucial to you being reunified with your family, you moving forward and um, and getting you know, the criminal justice department out of your life completely. And to know that some of these diagnoses are being almost recklessly put in, it's, it's it is, you know, it, that's what inspired me to this episode because I like 
I see the the poor bad treatment and and how people are often end up worse from end treatment when it's when there's misdiagnosis than when they were and they see it they see like wait a minute like I don't have a problem with you know I just kind of shared with you you know uh, to build a rapport as a patient and I'm glad he did um, a couple of things on my youth disorder and now like I have all this youth disorder and people are checking on me and doing XYZ and people talk and that discourages people from just saying anything I've had patients for that reason and different reasons say you know what? I wish I could tell you this but I know you would do XYZ and that hurts the relationship between provider uh, and patient um, you know and I get it there's reasons why people would want to know that uh, one of the bigger reasons is you want to avoid negative interactions between uh, you know substances and psychotropics and that's something that I've seen and heard of ever since uh, you know I worked alongside a uh, pain management uh, clinic within a health center and so that's fine but you can still notate that because I still notate that even though I don't give people the use disorders without giving them the use disorders but this oversight of withholding treatment or or doing bad treatment is, is something to be concerned about you know in terms of the, the ethical nature of it I, I am unsure about that but it doesn't seem like the right thing, especially because I've heard from varying providers that, you know, they know some people are using substances and they still prescribe psychotropics um, because they, you know, they realize they weigh the risk of interaction and they realize on some level that yes, maybe there's theoretically a risk, but overall patients will be fine. I mean, there are patients that at baseline and their regular use use substances on a regular basis and still take medication for whatever they're taking. Now, yet again, it should be noted and that should be factored into, into that decision, but it goes to show that it can happen. And when I had, a, I, it's fair, this issue is so real, I had multiple meetings based around this one issue with other mental health professionals and you know other therapists and some prescribers. And I asked them, prescribers point blank, would you still prescribe? And they said yes. So there is some precedent to say that having someone that's using a different substance does not completely cancel them from using or uh, having the benefits of psychotropics. And that trying to, and I've seen some patients try to use tax screens as a way to sort of penalize uh, patients that if they continue to use substances, they won't get their medication. But just cutting someone off from medication, and I, I don't know if that's good treatment, that in a way you can argue that is, you know, psychotropically abandoning the client. And yet again, it puts us in a hard spot um, because they don't think they have a problem. Uh, some of them may not think they have a problem. Some of them really don't have a problem. And yet here they are being pushed to live by someone's standard of substance use, which isn't even the standard. The standard is about excessive use that 
that ruined your life. That's a substance use disorder. When it ruins your life, when it ruins your job, when you ruins your relationships at home, when it ruins your uh, relationships at school, when it becomes your whole life and every other aspect of your life becomes secondary. Essentially, that's what it is. You know, when you spend so much time doing that, that everything else just seems not worth it. If you, you know, whether you agree to it or don't, or your personal preference, you know, may vary. Everyone has the the right to, on some level, use substances that are legal, uh, and and benefit from using those things, whether it be recreationally or medicinally, as we're seeing more and more states relax uh, their um, their stance on cannabis, move, inching more and more towards legalization. Uh, you know, it has benefits in a lot of different ways. And it's people's choice to use them. It's ours, our responsibility as providers to make sure that those aren't used in excess to do that. Um, so whether it's overdiagnosing or underdiagnosing, whether it's just not checking or being too reactionary, I definitely feel that, you know, that there's been a lot in terms of substance use. And, um, you know, sometimes it leads to stigma uh, of clients. And sometimes I think that's why some clients don't even say that because before, like, they feel stigmatized for saying it. They feel shame for once having that. And, you know, I've had patients that, you know, will sort of not mention certain things just because they feel sort of shame of how they'll be viewed. They feel shame of themselves um, because of how society has a negative thing. And I think as I kind of talk about these things, it reminds me of that sort of thing, like, is it a, is it a disease or is it a decision? You know, is it something that patients are overcoming or is it their patient's fault for making a horrible choice in life and you know there's aspects of both most substance use are voluntarily in a sense that like you know no one pushes use forces them to use certain things so there is a decision and it is some accountability but it is a it is a condition. It is, and it is a mental health disorder that once it takes hold, you know, and it's a completely understandable one as these things are readily available in the community, and you know they're not seen as poison, and they do have no matter how they are overall, they have benefits. So I don't think it's our job to sort of judge on life decisions that people don't have perfect information about. You know, people are born and they're just going into this world trying to like, figure things out and they try things. Sometimes it doesn't work out and sometimes it leads to something bad. And that's where we come in to help. All right, so this is my first session, section of the podcast and I'm doing this clean. Like I have 30 seconds left. Man, I could really use a sponsor right now so I could I could just plug, I could like your ad here.
and this podcast has been like your time here. But I'll see you on the other side of the next section. All right. So, I'm using my AirPods to record a second section because I got new machinery and I have to get used to it. But the last time in our first section, we talked about the high time substance use disorders are underdiagnosed or overdiagnosed. And I think um, it's really something to be careful of because of um, the weight. Uh, medical diagnosis brings um, in terms of the treatment as we talked before and having accurate treatment just in terms of like what type of uh, uh, version of treatment are people going to be put, be put into is it going to be inpatient or outpatient is it going to be regular outpatient in terms of visiting with the therapist is it going to mean there's going to be an um, uh, IOP are you going to suggest going you know, some, putting someone inpatient as a rehab or detox are you gonna put someone in a program where maybe it's just too much uh, treatment uh, for that patient, and it, you know, and, and all those issues are meaningful um, as you're trying to get the right treatment. Because as I said before, you know, more at length. Not to kind of go back to the first section, like it's what's really important is having the right assessment and having that right assessment meet that the right type of treatment. Because without um, having both, uh, you're constantly um, sort of trying to play catch up because you don't really know what the problem is. Um, and ironically, um, in talking, you know, I, I kind of came from a little bit of bias, and, you know, I'll, I'll admit it, in terms of people over-diagnosing. And it, it is true. And I have had people be over-diagnosed, and I've had... Uh, multiple patients where I've had to, I've gotten transfers and I literally would go through the symptomology because of that. But ironically, you know, there was once a patient that uh, I underdiagnosed or they didn't disclose. I always ask about, you know, uh, substance use symptomology in terms of them maybe having something uh, that we need to work on. And the person just didn't disclose to me. Um, maybe out of shame maybe just because it's hard for them to admit it and, and, and actually I think the person said it, the person said that you know, it's just hard, you know, there's so much stigma uh, in terms of like meeting uh, social norms and everyday life that when we ever we fall short it's hard, even with a therapist and you know, and with a therapist you're in a confidential space and unless you say something that about hurting somebody or hurting uh, hurting yourself or maybe, or maybe hurting you know kids or mistreating kids because that's a you know, BCF call. Um, other than that, pretty much, you know, I, it's, it's all fair game. And even in that space, um, even in that space, it was, the guy just didn't mention it at all. Um, and, it, you know, and it goes to show how before they come toward us, and us meaning providers or medical or sometimes medical facility, they see us in some sense as like professionals, but also kind of see us as like a authority uh, figure. 
um, and that and having some powers to affect your life, not just positively, you know, from getting help, but negatively, and that we have to be on our jobs to not underdiagnose, but at the same time not overdiagnose, because that really can be crucial in terms of the treatment uh, people receive um, when it comes to any diagnosis, but specifically substance use diagnosis. And you know, one thing I kind of want to focus on the second part is the stigma. Um, we talked about it in terms of maybe being stigmatized for treatment, but there's a lot of other stigma forms of stigma that can, uh, a patient can receive that can affect their life negatively. Um, one thing I kind of mentioned was legally. There's a lot of things that can happen to them uh, if their records are looked up and they have substance use on, has a diagnosis um, legally, uh, especially like if you think like they have, they're by themselves, but what if they have uh, children? You know, then that can prompt uh, maybe a DCF call or for tropical services, uh, an investigation. And I've had that. I've had had patients where they they have not used substances, but at the same time, they are constantly uh, having to deal with some either DCF or uh, or some related agency because of, of, of a erroneous or like a not true um, assessment of them having substance use issues, which is horrible. Um, so I think that, you know, it, at times that it, it's, it, it's discouraging because not only, you know, does it mistreat uh, patients, but at the same time, it discourages patients from wanting to uh, do stuff. and. I think that's why, you know, there's certain uh, things like that happens. Like, you know, you have me, I'm out here trying to discourage, you know, any type of under or over diagnosing and proper treatment being very sensitive when it comes to doing anything with substance use in terms of uh, uh, diagnosing. Um, and then not only that, you have certain um, federal rules. So uh, you have this thing called HH. 42 CFR part two, right? And that is a provision that puts extra control uh, when it comes to the privacy and confidentiality uh, when it comes to a patient records. I mean, and think about that, like patients already have a good amount of confidentiality uh, in terms of like stuff that's provided via HIPAA uh, and just stuff that's just thought as like an ethical part of treatment. Uh, in terms of like third parties not um, knowing, not even knowing that the person is treatment. You know, it goes so far where some people can't confirm or deny whether a person is a treatment to someone not, who's not named themselves. It's actually ironically is a, another, uh, that's a whole nother episode uh, that I gotta talk to y'all about because there's issues with that. And it comes to like, when do you get to that point where you have those rights because as you sort of move throughout the years, those rights sort of uh, grow as a patient. Um, it doesn't just start at 18. It starts like as low as 13 to 15 to 17 uh, in terms of uh, entering treatment and refusing treatment. Um, so, you know, we, there's already um, protections, but, so, but it's, it kind of shows that this is such an important issue 
And it's an issue that, unfortunately, is not being tended to. Um, and they just had a, and so basically the HHS 42 CFR part two, y'all can look that up, it's a mouthful, but just Google it and it'll pop right up, is another provision um, for um, substance use to say that um, that subs that if you have you know things in your record documentation that might indicate substance use for a patient that you have to even go through extra um, efforts to make sure that that patient is okay with those uh, records being uh, released to a third party um, and make sure that you know you that they're okay knowing that other people will see that and so therefore they can safeguard themselves from persecution. So therefore people can feel more um, uh, more comfortable about doing this. And there's a lot of different aspects of this. Um, and so, you know, even when I'm looking through the revisions, um, even though when I'm looking through the revisions now, and there are several revisions um, in terms of uh, the, the the, the mouthful of the HSS CFR that is in place. That is a mic drop. Uh, and there's several revisions in terms of everything that's happened that is uh, in place. Um, but one, um, uh, you know, if we're looking now, it's a disposition of records. It says when a substance use patient sends an accidental message to a personal device of an employee of a part two program, basically meaning like you're a part of a federal program, that um, the employee will be able to fulfill part two requirements of sanitized device by deleting that message. Um, and the person of that is to ensure the personal device employee will not be compensated or destroyed in order to sanitize part two. So even when you're getting text messages about patients that might have anything connected with the um, substance use, it's basically saying like, you need to delete the messages. You know, like anything that could possibly expose a patient's, um, a, a patient's uh, records or a patient's uh, information that might have anything to do with substance use needs to be wiped and needs to be clean. Um, and that's just a part of, uh, of, of good treatment. Um, you know, in terms of uh, even disclosures, um, one study says disclosures of the perpetration for health cooperation are permitted within written, written consent um, in connection to uh, illustrate this as 17 example activities. Um, you know, another part talks about how um, I think here, uh, if I can find it, um, that these records in a part two can't be used by law enforcement against the people. So therefore, if for some weird reason, if some reason, law enforcement gets a hand on these records, and these records uh, indicate um, substance use, they can't then turn those records turn around and persecute them, and for certain uh, things or crimes or charges related to substance use, giving them extra pr uh, protection. And I think the more important part is, is letting people know about this 
because it's something that's so important, yet a lot of people wouldn't know. And these federally uh, qualified health centers that are a part of this program are in neighborhoods throughout America where a lot of people go to and a lot of people don't know how to, you know, unfortunately advocate because there's not a lot of education put about this. Um, we talked about consent requirement. Uh, a substance use patient may consent to disclose with part two records without naming a specific person as a recipient for dis disclosure. So therefore, and it says the, the, meaning, the reason for that is to allow patients to apply for benefits and resources easily. For example, when using online applications that do not identify a specific person as a recipient for the disclosure. So therefore, even protecting your substance use uh, information when you're applying for certain programs, when, uh, when you're applying for certain benefits and resources, because that unfortunately can be you know, used uh, against you as a way to sort of uh, stigmatize or you know, devalue um, the, the application that you just put forth. Um, and that's and it's horrible because when you, you know it I'm thinking of even another patient I have in my past who ironically works in this field like a lot of people see substance use as a choice they don't see it as a disease they don't see it as a condition they see it as you may chosen to do something bad and all the effects all the primary effects of addiction whether it be you know, uh, uh, impairment socially, impairment professionally, whether it be, you know, getting hooked on the drug and physically uh, getting like tolerance and having, fit, you know, withdrawal symptoms, um, whether it means you constantly using more and more of your resources, your time, your effort, they put it on you. They, they, there are people out there, even in the helping field, that will put it all on you and won't care. Won't care at all about trying to do something. Um, and so knowing these rights help advocate for yourself because, you know, I talked about, you know, how people see facilities as paranoia and, you know, especially people of color, black people, Hispanic people, um, you know, a lot of these facilities still don't have enough people of color, you know, and specifically black doctors and healthcare professionals. Um, and, um, and ironically, on a, another tangent issue, I talked to another patient recently about how, you know, I, I, I me, mean, I'm a black man. Like, they were surprised that a black man was in a, such a high position. Like, they'd never seen a black man in, like, had his own office that was giving care, you know, like, it's usually a white guy or a white woman. Um, and that whole field, and in addition to the fact that there's some people that do either, either don't understand culturally the people they're dealing with or are that rigid in terms of how they see substance use and how they see um, disorders would lead to a healthy cultural paranoia. That's, that's literally the clinical term. And the unfortunate part is that usually paranoia is seen somewhat as a, as like, 
I don't want to say delusional, but a stretch, right? Like a very, like a, a warped sense of reality that is not founded um, based on, and if you were to really look at um, everything that is involved with um, the facts around that paranoia. But the unfortunate truth is that some of this paranoia and some of this fear is founded because there are professionals out there that will see you as a someone that has substance use and will literally use it against you. And so, you know, rice provisions, provisions that I can talk, provisions like these um, are, are great because they help you to, um, they help you to think about certain things in terms of how you protect yourself so if anything does happen, even if you don't remember everything, because like this is like a laundry list of different things, it's good to know like, hey, here's this bill and I can check it and see if anything weird has happened to my records um, due to uh, people with their own bias and agendas because, you know, people can have different biases and agendas about what they feel about substance use patients. Uh, you know, no one is bias free when it comes to race or culture, but it's your job to fight against that. It's your job to fight your own biases. That's why you have certain things, supervision, where you can talk about counter-transference. And this comes to this issue. Here it is, this is a provision essentially a law within uh, federal um, federal programs and even to an extent it, it sort of goes out to non-federal programs and not a lot of people know this I, I'm, I'm pretty sure if I was to mention this off the top of my head and say hey what's this to my to my colleagues to some of my colleagues they wouldn't know uh, I want to go to some of um, the other things uh, as a vision just to kind of get an uh, idea what else are the revisions uh, for, under the uh, Trump administration uh, for this. So it says undercover, undercover agents and informants. Court ordered placements of undercover agents or informants within a part two program will be extended for 12 month periods and court will be authorized to extend further. To address the concerns that the current policy is overly restrictive to some ongoing investigations. Um, all right, not sure what that is about, but we'll come back to that. Um, let's see, audit and edit, research, um, medical emergencies. The clear medical emergencies resulting from natural disasters that erupt, that disrupt the treatment facilities and services will meet definition of bona fide medical emergencies for the purpose of disclosing SUD records without patient consent under part two. To ensure clinically appropriate communications and access to SUD care, which is substance use disorder care, um, in the context of the clear emergency. But it had but that's interesting that this is that's the exception, right? Like it has to be a natural disaster. It has to be, you know, you see the hurricanes, the earthquakes, uh, the rainstorms that devastate um, towns that's happening more and more because of global warming uh, and because of, you know, uh, and, and climate change and us not, you know, adopting Green New Deal-like um, policies. 
but it has to be something that dire for us to overlook this. Think about that. Think about that. Like, it has to be something that dire. So, if you don't have a hurricane happening, if you don't have an earthquake tearing up your town, if you do not have a natural disaster tearing your town, and, and those extreme, extraordinary circumstances, and you even think about possibly uh, leaking someone's substance use disorder, please look up this policy. I will scroll up. I'm on my iPhone here. It's called HHS 42 CFR Part 2. Look it up. Uh, I was last revised in August 2019. And so therefore, you can do right by yourself and right by your um, client. Because I, I always say legal first. Now we're going to get to the last part of the show. So, here we go. The last section of this podcast. Which is, I do with so much respect for people who actually do podcasts on a regular basis. Because doing this is hard. Talking is hard. It's not hard, but doing it in a committed way to find or finish anything is hard. And I, it's weird. I was talking to a patient recently about... Um, passion and the time and effort that people put into things and how that being a sign of the things that we're passionate about and the things that um, we want to get done and the things that maybe we're not so passionate about and maybe some of these things aren't even things that we're not passionate about but we just are out of our grasp at least for right now and that's something to really think about So, this, this podcast has been really about substance use. In the first section, we talked about how it's important to diagnose appropriately, to avoid underdiagnosing, asking the questions, you know, even when there, even if there seems to be any uh, evidence or anything that, that could prompt substance use, to always ask the question. Um, the, but to not be so uh, uh, easy to diagnose or I guess so uh, trigger happy with the diagnosis of substance use um, and then we talk about well, how the reason why because there's so much consequences um, and you know second session we talked about a provision that even goes further to protect people's substance use diagnosis um, uh, in terms of, um, of how it's spoken uh, for medical professionals and, and how those uh, records are protected from uh, third parties. Now this one, I just talk about my experience because I do think despite the fact that I do feel concerned enough about substance use to make this podcast and make this whole podcast on substance use. And there can be so much about substance use. Honestly, I just talked about diagnosing and underdiagnosing and protecting people's information from the outside world. We could go into the, the feeling of being intoxicated by any one of these drugs. We can go into some exotic diagnoses 
about how these uh, symptoms uh, linger once a patient is intoxicated. There's so many different aspects of substance use. So definitely uh, expect, at least for me, as, as I continue this, if I continue this, to have more substance use podcasts based on just how it feels and the maybe the different addiction models uh, which goes from you know the social model where it's really part of your friends uh, or, or your family and it's almost like a socialized norm to do substances uh, whether it's it's a uh, award type system that you have for yourself you know some people really do they feel like hey I've been through a week of, a hard week of work take a drink or get a smoke and they see that as an award for themselves you know and even chemically what some of these drugs chemically do to us because I feel like breaking that down in an easy to understand way has always been something that needs to be done more and more so that people can understand what it is is in their body what is happening to their body when they use some of these um, drugs, and then go from there, have an opportunity to make as informed of a decision as possible. Because um, a lot of times you don't know. You know, a lot of people just think, hey, it is what it is, and they don't know the, the real breakdown of the chemicals and how they respond. They just know, I'm going to use this, and it's going to make me feel like this. And I want to feel like that. Not knowing the long-term consequences or or anything of that matter that might um, affect or could affect um, their decision to do anything. So I really think there's so much more in terms of substance use uh, and even substance use in terms of uh, being linked um, with other other diagnoses. You know, there's some diagnoses that have a high prevalence of being linked to substance use disorders. Um, and, you know, substance use feeds off of it and at times either enhances it or makes some substance use disorders even more extreme. So, you know, there's tons more. I know, uh, if I would say one off the top of my head, uh, like, a, a, like a personality disorder, like um, a paranoid personality disorder. Um, that is one that can definitely uh, be enhanced in, in a bad way by feeding off of substance use, feeding off of all those different things um, that you gain from being hooked to some certain substances. Uh, especially when you think of maybe someone that had paranoid personality, par paranoid personality disorder, intermittent explosive disorder, and then they use alcohol, which lowers their inhibitions. And now they're even more explosive and they're taking less caution when doing things that may not be uh, advisable uh, in terms of social norms or being, you know, uh, violent or aggressive. Uh, for reasons that may not warrant it. Um, so there's tons of things, you know, to talk about substance use. So I would definitely 
I enjoy this podcast so far, and I'm going to come back to it. But I still am proud. Like, I still have seen progress. You know, I'm not going to be one of those um, mental podcasts that's ever going to be ashamed of my political stance. Uh, you know, I'm liberal, left-wing, progressive, whatever you want to say, Green New Deal, the Fund Police, whatever, all that stuff. I'm that. Um, and I'm not... But even away from my stances, just in its connection to mental health in general, uh, a lot of the realities, the brutal, hard realities, are connected to policy, are connected to who we elect at a state, local, and federal level. Um, I was just talking to somebody yesterday uh, about mixed families, which is a whole other thing, but mixed families is... Basically saying, hey, if you have families with undocumented people and legal citizens in the same household, they can apply for housing. And the last administration, the Trump administration, tried to get rid of that. That would have been horrible. So, you know, I definitely think, you know, it's, it's the policies are related. But to come back to substance use, I, you know, there was, uh, there's a lot of states that have decriminalized, state, I'm in Connecticut, have decriminalized uh, cannabis, the state above us, uh, Massachusetts has completely legalized it. Um, there's been more states in this past election side that either decriminalized or took steps toward legalization. Um, as it's becoming more and more uh, in use, um, it's becoming less taboo. It, it, it was, to, even to talk about the decriminalization and talk about this, how the stigma of substance use is so real about anyone that even says anything about that. Um, and I do think it cuts with racial lines as well. Um, I remember, you know, Connecticut's been, uh, they, they decriminalized stuff for, for a little bit of a while. They have not legalized, but they have decriminalized marijuana and they have made medicinal marijuana legal for a little while now. And uh, I remember even a few years back, I was working somewhere, and it was legal, 100% legal, on the books, and no one wanted to talk about it. None of the medical professionals, doctors, social workers, everyone was like, oh, you know, they made these shows about Lucky and Eleven and all this other stuff. It's like, it's cannabis, man. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, it's not naughty, it's not, you know, it's a part of life. You know, to, without too much, going too far into it, guys, I haven't researched it for this podcast, I like to research everything to kind of know everything that's that's me um you can go as far back thousands of years ago people used drugs or other substances to escape temporarily escape their conscious mindset because there's a lot of stress that comes from being in the know about everything all the time and so you know on some level we this is what we do and, you know, if cannabis was legalized and it's found to be safe um, in regular use, which it seemingly has, and it's not just been any instantaneous or drastic harm done, it should be something that we should be able to talk about. And we're able to have those more nuanced conversations because there are some places where maybe cannabis use isn't a good thing in medical practice. And, and 
relating to mental health practice, uh, as I used to you know, work with a, a pain specialist, that you know, we talk about the dangers of interactions between cannabinoids and, and, and other pain medications. But if you're so afraid to even talk about it and even mention um, cannabis, how are you going to have a conversation? You know what I mean? Like, we're not, we, we ain't minds. We're not, you know, we're not telepaths. We're not, we're we not. I mean, some may be, but, like, that's not what I am or what most people are. And so, it, the fact that now we can talk about it openly in meetings and, and whether good or bad, because, I started this, I'm not going to lie, as I said in the first part, with a bias. A bias that, hey, man, everybody's over-diagnosing. Everybody's being all trigger-happy with the substance use diagnosis. And it's really costing people or putting people at risk for a lot of negative associations. And that's bad. Um, and so I started with that. Um, and I was... I mean, I'm still in a part right, because I've seen it, but as far as, like, not all as right as I thought it was. But the fact that one way or another, that we're just sort of talking about it, and we can mention it openly, I think it's huge. You know, because part of the, re the thing, and that goes into a further, um, uh, a further thing in terms of holding back uh, possible good benefits of, of drugs and substances that can help people, is that because it's been so restricted in society, and I think restricted as a Schedule One um, drug, we haven't had the freedom to test and research it as freely and, and as extensively as you would want to. So therefore, you would know, okay, in these situations, cannabis helps. In these situations, cannabis don't help. You know, like it would be great to have that test and those findings. And, on, and it can just build and build. Um, but yet again, progress is made. You're seeing so many people have cannabis companies that sell cannabis that you know I'm all in favor for and I'm all a fan of. Um, you know, so many people, you know, celebrities and public figures are fronting cannabis companies. Um, you have so many people that are actually getting their own cannabis company and it really it makes me feel like anyone doing it but specifically black and brown people because you know part of the stigma and i didn't mention it directly um i just didn't think about it at the time and 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 i this is more about just it this mental health in general but it, it is always a factor is race you know these drugs were assigned to uh, certain races to make them seem more deviant and, and a danger and a risk and were used as a way to, or as an excuse to lock people up. I mean, that's not a lot. The amount of people, you know, that in prison for, you know, nonviolent drug offenses is staggering. Oh, 
and Wild One is sort of kind of tentative, even though it's not. Um, for states that have medicinal or legal cannabis uh, laws, some of those states have precedents where people who have been locked up can literally get their uh, jail time like immediately expunged and their prison sentence immediately canceled. Um, it's a process. But I actually knew a lawyer that went out of his way to do that. Um, so that's something off the top of my head that I keep forgetting. But yeah, it was racist. The way that, and not the drugs themselves, but the way that these drugs were perceived and 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 um, and were displayed and projected to society by the media, by people who a lot of these media people who had racist, if not the entire publication was racist, by the government that you know at times we work hand in hand with the media to project these sort of racist sentiments um, to further demonize and villainize black people and brown people and it's horrible and so that's why I'm so overjoyed that these conversations are happening because hopefully with that being demystified that's one less thing to say oh that black guy is horrible or, the, or that Puerto Rican guy is horrible you know and also hopefully we get businesses because I, I love the, that there's this dispensaries getting opened up um, but to be honest I want to see black people open up these dispensaries. I want to see black business thrive um, because it's it's weird that we get all the attention, negative attention legally and through the media for all these drugs even though I, it's not even uh, and I, you know, I, I hate talking about all this stuff all loosely but I don't even think it's 50-50 now. Like before, it used to be a like 50-50, uh, we all use the same thing. I think black people, I think it's in their study that we use it less on overall. We use cannabis less. And we're still, you know, and there's still that lingering thing there of like minorities using, you know, drugs. So the more normalized these conversations happen about substance use, uh, the more the less fanaticism, the less frenzy, uh, the less overproportionate uh, scared response happens when you see anything related to drugs. And if you just see drugs as what they are. A way to have fun, a way for some people to self-medicate, and a way for some people to um Escape their unconscious. Things that, if done in access, and, and if done irresponsibly, can cause great harm. But if done in control, are no problems, and there shouldn't be anyone's uh, issue to check someone if that's what they enjoy. Um, I've, I don't have scientific of that but I know I've seen and heard so many patients who talk about how
how it has changed their life. And I've been in situations where I've been around people who are in professional, who are in corporate America, who can't survive without it. And not in the sense of being dependent. You know, I'm sure they'll be able to kind of find a way to have their job, but it'd be a, a detriment to the performance because it's the thing that helps them with anxiety. It's the thing that helps them go to meetings. It's the thing that helps them to put themselves in difficult situations that are stressful. And, you know, to do something that's so human as trying to deal with stress and compounding stress as we have all these different things that try to either attack us or make us feel a certain way and to either be criminalized or villainized is, is horrible. Um, so let's continue to have this conversation. Let's continue to build and grow to make this normal and the treatment of this normal. All right, that's it. My name is Omar Green, LCSW. And this has been the LCSW, the podcast. Till next time, breathe easy.